from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your hosts, Kalita Leaquat and Kate Wilson. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. Before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to do a quick shout out to our listeners. The NSGC podcast subcommittee is looking for individuals interested in joining our group of dedicated members in 2020. If you are interested, please visit nsgc.org forward slash podcasts to apply. All right, let's dive into this month's episode where my co-host Kate will sit down with two genetic counselors to discuss ethics in genetic counseling. First up, Kate is speaking with Shelby Taylor, co-author of the journal article, Family Communication Following a Diagnosis of Myotonic Dystrophy, To Tell or Not to Tell. Then Kate will sit down with Megan Strenk, chair of the NSGC Ethics Advisory Group, to discuss the code of ethics and how you can use it in your practice. Take it away, Kate. Hi, Shelby. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a great chance to talk through this research and I guess think about some of the broader ethical issues as well. So I understand you were looking at the ways families communicated a diagnosis of myotonic dystrophy or that relatives may be at risk for myotonic dystrophy. So I was wondering if you could first tell me a little bit about the reason behind the study. Why was this study necessary? Yeah, of course. So I guess to give some context, this is a study that sort of came out of a a much larger study in New Zealand. So it was called the MD-PREV study. So it was a nationwide study that really aimed to get a, a better sense of the number of people in New Zealand affected by genetic muscle conditions and to assess the impact and cost sort of across the lifetime. And a couple of the clinician researchers who were involved in this study really started wondering about this concept of communication in um, these families. And it was sort of anecdotally, it seemed that on average, fewer family members were approaching genetic services to discuss the option of genetic testing. And that's sort of what sparked this whole research idea. And I guess why myotonic dystrophy specifically. So firstly, there was a big gap in the literature, so we couldn't find any studies that really addressed the issue of communication about genetic risk information uh, in the context of myotonic dystrophy. And I guess with myotonic dystrophy, it's quite a, a complex genetic condition, so it has quite a complex medical picture associated with it. And so we wondered if you know, there were these unique issues connected with myotonic dystrophy that could impact communication. And I guess the psychosocial issues as well. And thinking about that further, so myotonic dystrophy affects people in very different ways in families. So it, it doesn't always follow this clear picture. So it's not always obvious if there is a family history or not. And also that concept of anticipation as well. So the repeat size can get um, larger with each generation. And so people can be affected more significantly with each generation. So we thought maybe some of those issues would impact communication in unique ways that hadn't been addressed previously. 
I appreciate you going over some of the things that are unique about myotonic dystrophy and why it may be a challenging condition for individuals to talk about with their family members. So in doing the study, what did you find out about family communication? Well, we found out lots, as you would imagine, with a qualitative study. Firstly, we came across this concept that there are really diverse ways of communicating and that makes a lot of sense. So families themselves diverse um, and part of this is the range of ways that they communicate. And so some families were very open in the way that they talked about myotonic dystrophy. So it was sort of a very accepted and normal part of their family story. And so there weren't really any issues in um, terms of communicating in an ongoing sense about the diagnosis. But equally, there were many families who avoided talking about it. And often ideas of guilt and blame and denial were really tied up in that approach to talking or not talking about myotonic dystrophy. Most people, when they were talking to me, they sort of reported that they or another um, close family member, usually a female relative, told relatives about the diagnosis. So it was often said that close relatives were informed, but it was often assumed that the message had then been spread to wider family members. And like I sort of alluded to, so females were really important throughout the communication process. So females seem to be very active in communicating this diagnosis, whereas the men I interviewed seem to be more reliant on their sisters or mums or wives even to get the message out to the wider family. And that aligns with a lot of other research in the genetic counselling context about other genetic conditions as well. So those were two of the key findings. So you talked about that a lot of times people might communicate to the immediate family, but not the extended family, or just might assume that it was already done. And I thought it was interesting that you'd mentioned that non-disclosure could be active or passive. Did you find that it was really passive, that they just assumed somebody else had found out or they just didn't make a choice to tell? Or did you find that more people actively made the decision not to share? Yeah, I think it was the first. So I think for family members who weren't aware, it was that passive non-disclosure. So perhaps people weren't sort of aware of, of the ripple effect. So they told their, their siblings and their parents and, you know, they thought that's where the relevance sort of lies. There were a few people who reported actively not telling family members. So there were only a couple of instances of that and it was select family members. So most of the time, that active non-disclosure sort of stemmed from disconnection and um, there was an example of an adoption that had taken place and that participant didn't want to sort of unsettle um, things in the family by sort of reaching out to let them know about the diagnosis. There was another example of estrangement and sort of conflict in families, which meant they didn't feel comfortable sharing this information. And of course, there were a couple of really powerful narratives in, in my research, really, and in the paper. And so two women who were on the receiving end of non-disclosure, so they were able to provide their perspective of yeah, being on the receiving end of not being told about a diagnosis and um, actually having a child affected by 
myotonic dystrophy. So one woman had a child with a congenital form and the other woman had a child who was diagnosed a bit later in life with myotonic dystrophy. And did those two individuals, after they found out that there was this family history that they weren't aware of, did they share their feelings or what they wished would have happened potentially? Yeah, they did. Um, And they, again, were quite powerful stories and um, stories that have really resonated. So both really wished that they had been told and, um, they both felt like control was taken away from them. Um, so there's actually a quote in the paper about this. They really wished that they had have had that information prior to making reproductive decisions and both actually stated that they would have made different decisions. So they expressed a sense of decisional regret. And again, both of these women went on to have second children one through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and one through adoption. And so these women really talked about how important they felt communication was and they felt like people should have be more active in that process and felt that there was a, a responsibility to share this sort of information with the wider family. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like that sometimes this communication or lack of communication could alter the family relationships or family dynamics. Was there anything surprising that you learned from the study about how the families were communicating? So in terms of the ways families were communicating, I think something surprising for me was this idea of minimizing narratives. And um, that's a theme we talk about later in the paper. So nearly every single participant I spoke to minimized the significance of their diagnosis. And I guess what we sort of concluded from that or what we thought of that was perhaps was tied into a way of coping and adapting to the condition. I guess on, on one hand, people were saying, you know, it could be worse, it could be Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or it could be a cancer diagnosis. And these are actually quotes. Some of them are in the paper. But then on the other hand, people are talking to me about these, you know, these really strong family histories of some of these people had multiple family members who had died of, of issues that were related to myotonic dystrophy or people who had experienced multiple miscarriages because of myotonic dystrophy. And so it was just a really interesting observation, this idea of people almost sort of downplaying the significance of this condition in in their lives. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I thought that was also something I had not thought about as people not necessarily thinking about the either the importance of the diagnosis or what it could mean to other people, but also I think their way of coping with it is to try to put it in perspective, yeah. um, but that it can impact then how they're communicating that information. And another area I thought was interesting was the appropriate communication. So what they ought to say, what they should say. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I guess um, there was this idea that came out of interviews that there were sort of these predetermined rules or expectations in the family of, of how to talk about it and not necessarily how to talk about it with everyone, but sometimes there were sort of selective people where you could be open about myotonic dystrophy with or particular people, for example, um, 
grandparents where people knew you couldn't talk to them about it because it, it would have been a difficult conversation. And so people seemed to sort of follow these expectations in, in the family and saying that some people went against the, um, the expected way of communicating as well. So a couple of people actively stepped past a, a gatekeeper of information, for example. So there's a quote in the paper from a, a woman who made a decision that she was going to tell her cousins because she knew that her uncle hadn't and she was concerned because they were approaching an age where they might start thinking about having children for themselves and um, she was really concerned about the possibility of congenital myotonic dystrophy Um, and so that's really what drove her to sort of make her own decision about the appropriateness of communication in that setting. Sounds like it's really challenging for some families to speak about this. And I think, you know, what your study shows is there's many different ways the information is handled. Mm. How did that influence your practice as a genetic counselor? So having this kind of insight into how families share information about a diagnosis or a risk for a condition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess for me, um, that being involved in this project has been a really amazing experience because, as you said, I have had this insight and participants were so open and honest and vulnerable with me about their experiences. And I guess the key message for me in terms of um, my own practice is as a genetic counsellor now, I feel like I have more of an, an active conversation with the patient sitting in front of me. So rather than, you know, just making general comments about the impact of a diagnosis for family members, I'm more active in prompting people to consider who it's actually relevant for. So prompting people to consider that potentially the the ripple effect in a family. More active in exploring family dynamics as well um, to get a sense of not only who is this person in front of me, but who are they in terms of their their broader family context as well and how does that family sort of interact. I also explore ways of communication in the family. So in, in my study, it was very clear that there were key messengers in the family and I know that's been discussed in lots of other family communication studies as well. So often it's, you know, having a conversation with a person about, you know, how do people normally communicate in your family? And is there someone in particular that you think you could share this with in the first instance and they might be able to help you get the message to other people? Um, so I think I take a more individualised and sort of personalised approach to the person sitting in front of me and, and their unique family situation. And uh, I re- really think that this study has highlighted as well the importance of meaningful communication. So what are the key things that family members need to be aware of in helping patients in front of me to communicate those, those key messages so that people are informed, but informed in a meaningful way? I think that that's some good information for other genetic counselors listening. You know, if they are thinking about how do I incorporate some of these learnings about family communication, what are some things that I could think about or look for? So I think it's very helpful. 
Is there anything else that you wanted to share about your study or any other resources that you wanted to provide? I guess the only other message was also about assumptions as well. And it's tied into that idea of prompting people to to consider who potentially could be impacted by this sort of information. And often people assume, you know, it's just it's just parents or it's just siblings and people aren't aware of the wider impact. I think that that's good because again, we assume, I think sometimes communicate to your family members, but perhaps we're not either specific or like you said, I think it helps to ask a question to see who the patient intends on sharing this information with or who they think needs to have this information. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, I think that that's a good way of phrasing it. We're not always specific. And also, I think thinking about myotonic dystrophy specifically, because people are affected in very different ways, I guess it's alerting people to the range of ways that people can be affected. And I guess that idea that you can't just assume you know, this isn't relevant for someone just because they don't have the same health problems. And I think that's a very good point too, to discuss with patients. Shelby, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed chatting with you and I really enjoyed reading the article. So I appreciate you being here to talk about it. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. To read Shelby's full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. Next up, I'm sitting down with Megan Strang. Hi, Megan. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Hi, good morning. Well, I appreciate you coming to talk with us some more about ethics and the advisory group within NSGC. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what the ethics advisory group is. Sure. So the ethics advisory group is a group of several members of NSGC who are available to kind of review and um, offer some thoughts or opinions on ethical questions or tricky situations that NSGC members may run into. It's a group that's supported through NSGC and the way to submit a question is through a form online on the NSGC website. So it's a resource where practicing genetic counselors can either get additional information or look for additional resources when they come across an ethically challenging circumstance or case. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if a genetic counselor has a a situation where they feel maybe like there's no clear path to take or they kind of have a feeling of what needs to happen, but want some, you know, additional backup or some additional support or to have somebody else weigh in. Um, It's a a resource available for them to be able to do that. And so how does the advisory group work? So you said that online GCs can submit their questions or kind of sketch out the, the challenge that they're encountering. And then how does the ethics advisory group then work through that situation? Mm -hmm. So the genetic counselor who has a question would submit their question or their situation through an an online form to NSGC. And then there's an NSGC EAG liaison who reviews those um, and passes them along to the chair of the EAG committee or the EAG. And then that 
document gets forwarded to the members of the EAG and we have a robust discussion over email or telephone with the members of the group um, and we kind of hash out who's thinking about it in different ways and what are all of the ethical issues that are going on and then we refer back to the NSGC code of ethics to kind of identify things that might be helpful for the person who's requesting the consultation. And a lot of times the requesting GC already has an idea of what they're going to do or what what they feel the the most appropriate path is. In those instances, um, I think where the EAG can be helpful is saying, you know, these are the parts of the code of ethics that support that path. And I think that helps GCs look at things within that framework of the code of ethics. Is the code of ethics available on the website? It is. You can just search for the the code of ethics and it should it should come up. How did the EAG come to be a, a part of NSGC? The code of ethics was initially developed in 1992 and it, it seems like the EAG may have come out of that development and members wanting a way to get some help or some guidance on ways to apply that code of ethics to their practice in certain situations. And so when looking at a case, when you're approaching it from an ethical framework, you're looking at, if I remember correctly from my training days, we talk about beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. So you're kind of trying to keep that in mind, correct, when you're evaluating a case. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then we're, we're also thinking about the code of ethics from the NSGC in terms of practicing ethically in terms of genetic counselors' relationships with themselves and their peers and their patient, obviously, and society. And so I think that kind of lines up nicely in a lot of cases with those ethical principles that we all talk about in our training. So that's important to know that it's not just in relating to patients, but like you said, with colleagues, with society as well. Yeah. Most often, or most of us probably think about ethical concerns with what am I going to do for my patients? Like Shelby talked about in her article, thinking about, you know, how am I going to disclose results or, you know, this result is important for this, this patient of mine, but also for their family. So how am I going to communicate that importance to a family? But there also can be ethical issues that come up with between colleagues. You know, if you have um, maybe not a close colleague, but say somebody in your city or something like that, that is doing things differently than you do or that you have concerns about the the choices that they're making or you have concerns about a new company that's offering some kind of genetic testing in your your city or your state and you're wondering what is there to do about it or is there anything to do about it. You know, sometimes I think the EAG can be helpful in helping people think through some of those things, um, at least from the standpoint of the code of ethics. And obviously for some types of questions, it ends up being more of kind of a legal question or something like that. So that's not something that the EAG can really comment on. And so sometimes some of our response back to a genetic counselor is, you know, we really recommend you consult with your institution's legal department or with, if your institution has an internal ethics committee, it'd be important to get their opinion as well to get kind of the wider picture of the particular um, institution or environment somebody is practicing in. And I think that that's, that's another helpful point is that most institutions and even workplaces, whether it's a, a clinical or academic center or not, do have some form of legal or compliance or ethical board um, that they can go to. It. So mm-hmm. it sounds like the, the EAG does consult, but then also can help maybe point G- 
genetic counselors in a direction um, if it's something that is outside of the, the EAG's um, purview. Right. Yeah, exactly. You had mentioned Shelby, who we talked to earlier uh, about her study. And she had shared with us that sometimes families either don't share a diagnosis or it's just kind of more a, a passive non-disclosure. So thinking about genetic counselors, what are the things that we should consider when we talk to our patients about sharing their results? Because I think one of the things that came up in the article was that you want your patient to have autonomy, and we generally encourage them to share results, but at the same time, how much do we pressure them or push them to share their results? Yeah, I think that's a question that probably most genetic counselors are going to struggle with at some point in their career to, to have a family who has, um, you know, some kind of diagnosis other family members would benefit from knowing about um, and who is, is, you know, going to be reluctant uh, to share that information or, um, you know, unable to do so or, or, you know, there's going to be some, some hindrance to that. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason why, you know, really establishing um, a good relationship with your, with your patients and with your clients is important um, because I think it gives you kind of a, a base on which you can have some of those continued conversations um, to kind of get into why it's important to share information and how that, how that might look and how the genetic counselor could be helpful. Um, so I think there's very clear boundaries about the information that we can share with other people as healthcare providers. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, part of our responsibility is trying to help our, our patients understand um, not only how their diagnosis affects them, but how it could affect their family members. And that there's resources available for family mm -hmm. members who, who might want to explore that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that that's part of it is just, you know, that psychosocial counseling that's so important in genetic counseling is figuring out, you know, understanding the family dynamics, letting them know some of the reasons why they may want to, to share the results. And I think Shelby did give us some good things to kind of think about or questions to ask about that helps us dig a little bit deeper. I do want to go back because we were talking about, you know, kind of the four parts of ethics and autonomy. And that, again, was something that came up in our discussion with Shelby about the importance of patient autonomy. So why is that important to the field of genetic counseling? When I think about patient autonomy, it kind of goes back to the, the history of genetics and getting back into the idea of, of eugenics and having people in power be directing reproduction and medical care and all sorts of things as has happened in the past. And so I think for me and for genetics in general, I think autonomy really comes out of, at least in some part, that history and, and wanting to make really clear to patients that, you know, genetic testing and genetic information can be important for your health and for your family. Um, and it can be useful information to know, but it has to be your decision whether or not to find that information, whether to pursue that information. And then I, I think in the United States, at least with medical care, privacy is, is a huge issue. Um, and so in order for patients to trust us and establish that therapeutic relationship, um, I think they have to feel confident that their information is going to stay their information unless they give express permission that it can be shared. I think that's, that's also 
a good point to hit on is um, with the patient autonomy, you know, it's very important in our field about informed decision making and that ultimately, you know, it is the patient who is deciding. And like you said, there are also some additional factors to consider, um, such as privacy um, and some of the, the uh, protections that are in place um, for patients. And so it sounds like one of the, the challenges, I think, you know, with some of these cases and why an EAG consult can be helpful is thinking through all these different threads and trying to figure out, you know, what falls on the ethical side, maybe where a little bit more digging is needed or consult on the legal side, because many times it's not clear cut. Like you said, it's, it's a gray or tricky area. And I think, I think the, the EAG is great because I know even just amongst the conversations that, that we have as an EAG, you know, I would say most of the time different people are picking out different threads of things. So, you know, something that didn't occur to me um, based on a, you know, a case that somebody may have submitted um, is something that's clear to one of the other EAG members um, or alternatively, like, you know, two, two EAG members may have totally different interpretations of the same question. Um, and so I think that is, it kind of illustrates the grayness and the murkiness that can kind of exist in some of these, some of these situations where we find ourselves, um, which is really where ethics exists, is in those situations where there's not necessarily a clear answer um, or where it doesn't seem like there's a good solution. Um, so trying to, to help people think through all of the different um, issues that exist in a situation and the, the different ways that they may, that those issues may impact various outcomes is one of the ways that the EAG can be really helpful. Yeah, because uh, people have different experiences, so it's, it's good that there's this sort of multidisciplinary, multifaceted group that is available. How can the membership or genetic counselors become more involved with the EAG? The EAG is a rolling group, so there's usually one or two people who are kind of fulfilled their commitment every year. Um, and so I think one way would be to watch for the announcements that they, the EAG is looking for new volunteers. So that would, be, that would be one way. I definitely think if members have ethical questions, for sure, um, talk to your, you know, their own ethics committees. But I know lots of GCs are branching out and have kind of non-traditional roles right now, um, which is great. Um, but it also means that there may be uh, um, GCs practicing um, in environments or in, in places where, um, you know, like an ethics committee is not as readily available as it might be in kind of a traditional hospital setting or traditional office setting. So if there are genetic counselors who are struggling with a, you know, a particular issue or not struggling, but just, you know, want to get kind of some outside thoughts um, on something they have going on, send in a, send in a question, send in a case use the, the resource that's available. I would love to see some additional ethics discussions like with NSGC. You know, the membership is interested in ethics and interested in these kind of issues and interested in engaging in this kind of stuff. And so it would be great to see kind of in the future NSGC, you know, have some additional opportunities for members to engage with ethics. I agree. I said earlier, you know, it's something we think about in training um, and it may come up you know, when we do have a challenging case, but it's not necessarily something that maybe is at the forefront, mm -hmm. but it's still something that, 
is very much prevalent in continuing education and a lot of the courses and presentations that are available. So I think just staying engaged, even in ethical discussions, can be very helpful. Is there any other resources that you wanted to give? I think the Code of Ethics is really, really useful, and I think it's really laid out in a way that has been helpful for me. And so I think if if people haven't reviewed the Code of Ethics in a while, um, I'd encourage them to do so. And then just know that the EAG is available. If a GC has a, a question that they're struggling with or a situation they're struggling with, there is an opportunity within NSGC to get some assistance with that. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. Luckily, you won't have to wait long to hear from us again. We have a special edition episode coming your way for Genetic Counselor Awareness Day on November 14th, 2019. Visit www.nsgc.org forward slash JGCCEU to learn how to earn CEUs for listening to the podcast series. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors and made possible by the NSGC Podcast Subcommittee. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. We'll see you next time.